everybody. Scott Bowden and Brian Lass right along ringside and ready to go with another big week here at the Kentucky Fried Wrestling Podcast. Brian, tell the good folks what we got lined up this week. Jerry Jarrett returns to the show once again this week to discuss many topics with you, Scott, including Dusty Rhodes' appearances versus Jerry Lawler in Memphis nearly 41 years ago to the day and why Jarrett and the Dream had a falling out in 1984. We also hear about the Lawler-Dundee feud of 1977, how Pro Wrestling USA came together and ultimately failed, and Jerry Jarrett's heat with Jim Crockett Jr. and Ric Flair. All of that and so much more. (laughs) Well, that does sound like a packed show indeed. A dream lineup for sure. If we're going to get it all in, we better get going. We'll be right back after this message. Yeah, uh-huh, I'm right here. I'm on my princess. Wait a minute. I'm on my peak princess phone live with Colonel Tom Parker, Memphis, Tennessee. Elvis is on. Elvis is on the line. They're waiting to hear from me. They're waiting to see me. They got all their children around the TV. Colonel Tom Parker told me in just a few minutes, see him, see him here. He told me and said, Big Dust. Coming to Memphis, Jerry Lawler wants some of you. You want some of Jerry Lawler? This this world title thing gonna be straightened out. I'm the number one contender for the title. I'm the prettiest athlete in the world. I'm the greatest. I am the best. I'm the man of the hour. Oh, too sweet to be sour, Jack. I pick up this phone this morning when it rang. I said, long distance information. Give me Memphis, Tennessee. Help me find a party, try to get in touch with me. She did not leave a number. I know who to call. Elvis called me there. Elvis said, I'm going to pick you up in your limousine. I want you there driving in styling class. And your smiling face and a lot of grace. The thing is, Jerry Lawler, go feel the power of the dream. Go see the dream get down and boogie like nobody ever seen him boogie. Memphis, Tennessee going to be my home, my house, all the black. And all the white, and all the green, all the yellow, and all the races, creeds, and color going to flow in that building. Going to see me because I got something special for him. If he wants to match, I got my road shuffle. I'm going to put it on him. I'm so quick. I'm going to sting him, knock him down, beat him down. Jerry Lawler is not quick enough to stay with a dream. And better than that, I might even be there early with 17 dancing go-go bears. And we are back on Kentucky Fried Wrestling. And my guest today is a legend in the wrestling business. In his 20s, he was one of the holy trinity of baby faces in the Memphis Territory, along with Jackie Fargo and Tojo Yamamoto. His inquisitive mind, his understanding of the human condition, and his appreciation of the storytelling of William Shakespeare made him an instant success as a booker. And much like Brutus portrayed his friend Julius Caesar with a sharp knife, Nick Goulas made the mistake of backstabbing this man, underestimating the young man's tenacity and ambition. It's all these traits and more that led him to eventually take over the Memphis Territory and crush his former ally in a short-lived wrestling war in 1977. And as a lot of fans of unfortunate Bruce Pritchard are finding out, he's got a low threshold for bullshit and a sharp <laughs> tongue and wit to back it up. Most important, folks outside of Memphis are finally starting to realize just how much this man changed the course of the WWF 
in the 90s and how his creative influence was a big reason Bret Hart, Sean Waltman, and even Sean Michaels went from mid-card feuds over the IC title to the main event over the WWE World Championship. He is now the star of his own podcast with host Sean Reedy and currently the hottest heel on Twitter, ladies and gentlemen, Jerry Jarrett. Scott Bowden, <laughs> I love it when you talk sweet to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I know, I know uh, the, the the best way I could get you on the show is, uh, oh, Jerry, I really need you. I need you to, to explain something to me uh, about something in Memphis history that I don't understand. So, uh, and you you kindly agreed, even though you're about to take off on vacation, and I really appreciate your time. Yeah, well, I'm uh, I'm glad to join you. You know, Scott, when we uh, when we get together, even though it's on the phone. Uh, it brings back old memories for me, and that's a a fun thing in my life. Yeah, well, I think I think it was a special time for for both of us, uh, but but for completely different reasons, uh, and specifically the summer of '77. Uh, you know, a lot of I think a lot of kids my age when they, they think of 1977, they immediately think of Star Wars. And I and I and Star Wars is in there, is it's in the mix, but really I start thinking about that Lawler Dundee feud. That just captured my imagination. Now, I'd seen like the Mongolian Stomper about a year or two before that, and I thought he was interesting and cool, but I just, you know, I just didn't get into it. It was the the heated promos, the 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 personal conflict between Lawler and Dundee and all the crazy stipulations, which seemed to get crazier and more insane with each passing week, along with the crowds, along with the attendance, it kept spiking, uh, drew a couple of sellouts, and then back-to-back crowds of, of I think, 10,000 people for consecutive hair matches with uh, Bill Dundee and Bev both losing their hair. Uh, and I, and I do, I would like to talk a little bit about uh, that feud. I, I had Jim Cornette on last week and, um, even though he didn't know anything really about Mil Mascaras and had nothing to contribute there, he did know a lot about the Lawler Dundee feud. And, you know, he, he attributed s- some of the box office success to the fact that, that Lawler Dundee, I mean, some of, some of it indeed was, was really personal. They both were kind of positioning themselves uh, to be the top dog in the territory. Uh, and the door was open for Dundee to come in after you had to teach Lawler a lesson, uh, I believe in 1975, uh, when he didn't want to make some of the towns uh, on the other side of the state. Um, and that uh, that enabled Dundee and, and George Barnes to come in, and uh, they got over like gangbusters right from the start. Uh, is, is that the way you remember it? Yeah, pretty much. Um, you mentioned Cornette. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, but Jim hadn't been thinking straight lately <laughs> since he resumed his affair with Hillary Clinton. <laughs> he really, I mean, it's not just Mil Mascaris that he can't remember. There's a whole lot of stuff he can't remember. And, I mean, you know, it. my granddaddy used to say, too much will make you go blind. Well, <laughs> I'm afraid Hillary is making poor Jim lose his mind. I mean, you know, he goes on this Republican rants, and I know he's trying to get over with his sweetheart, but hell, enough's enough. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! Well, you've come out firing today, uh, and I have to say, uh, we talked a little bit about this before the show. I've, I've just admired some of your handiwork on Twitter. Uh, I've had to deal with some of these same morons uh, who are disciples of Bruce Pritchard and uh, believe uh, what this 
former coffee boy has to say and, and what Brother Love is preaching. They take that as the gospel when they say that uh, Jerry Jarrett had very little influence when he was in WWF. But, uh, you know, the people who know you, who were also there at the time, Lawler, Cornette, they've all said uh, that you were a big backer of the smaller talent like Bret Hart, uh, Sean Michaels, Sean Waldman, getting the push to the main event. So these guys were having the best matches on the cards, typically, but for the IC title. And there was only a certain ceiling that they were going to reach until you came in. Uh, and, and for a lot of different reasons, you knew that it would draw. And plus, it just made sense. I mean, if Vince is about to go to jail for steroid distribution, it, it, it makes sense logically to get away from that. But you knew it was more than that, though. You, you, had, you had all the confidence in the world that it would draw, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, smaller guys, uh, well, pro football, you put the 300-pounders on the line and and you put the smaller backs at wide receiver or or in the backfield, the so-called skill positions. And... uh, it's it's just a physical fact of life that a smaller guy doesn't have as far to fall to the mat and therefore doesn't have as it's a lot easier for him to get up so they can have more action. Now this is not to take anything away from the big guys. Um, the Rock is one of the greatest wrestlers in my opinion of all time. And uh, he's certainly not a little guy. All I felt like then and feel like now is don't disqualify somebody based on size. It's a non-factor. Yeah, Jerry, and I think that was uh, very wise on your part to see beyond size. Uh, A guy may have small stature, but he could deliver in the ring and on his promos and draw big money. Uh, I think another thing, too, that you often don't get credited enough for is the fact that, you know, you had a great eye for new talent, but you also had a way of bringing out the best in guys in the twilight of their career. Uh, guys like Jackie Fargo, uh, Al Green, uh, you know, I think in, in 75, he came back with you and uh, ended up making a lot of money in the wrestling business as he closed out his career. Is that, uh, is that, is that accurate? Uh, Al, bless his heart, died a multimillionaire from the money he made in here. Uh, he asked me to come help find a property, and he bought one farm and sold off a piece of it and bought another. And by the time he died, he, uh, he owned a lot of land in Lebanon, Tennessee, right out from Nashville. And, uh, you know, he would call me sometime and say, uh, you know, I'm really getting old, Jerry, and I'm in this darn wheelchair, but I want you to know uh, I pray for you every day because of what you meant to my life. And, you know, there's no amount of money, there's no success that is equal to a telephone call like that. And, you know, I, I, I miss Al every day. 
Um, and Al, uh, I believe, had that late resurgence in his career. If uh, you know, if I'm not mistaken, I believe. Did, did did you walk into a diner and find him sort of sort of uh, down down and out a little bit and down on his luck? And maybe he had been uh, drinking too much, or am I confusing that with somebody else? Oh no, no, I went. Uh, Nick and Roy had their uh, office. At a hotel downtown, uh, James Robertson, I think. And right off of the street was a little, uh, you know, place that had coffee and you could get breakfast and hamburgers. Um, Anyway, I walked in there and Al was sitting there and stunk to high heaven, hadn't shaved in two weeks, nasty clothes. And Al is one of the guys that I would go to the Hippodrome when I was a kid in selling the wrestling programs and and watch Don and Al Green. And, uh, you know, I just thought he was one of the greatest wrestlers that ever lived. And so I sat down beside him and I said, uh, Al, I'm Jerry Jarrett. And he looked over at through bloodshot eyes and says, who? <laughs> I said, uh, I'm booking Memphis. And he said, hey, kid, don't shit me. I said, no, I really am. I'm on the way into the office. I said, but you look terrible, Al. He said, well, I just got back from Panama, and they lied to me, and I felt lucky to get out because they said they were going to kill me. Uh I don't have any money, and my car broke down about 10 blocks from here. And I was going to go in and see if Nick and Roy would give me, you know, a job, because I am flat broke. And I said, well, order you a cup of coffee and a donut or something, and let's talk. So we sat there, and he finally, I told him about Memphis, and and Al finally said, uh, if you will book me and give me one last chance, I swear to you, I will never drink another drop of alcohol. And I said, well, Al, I'm going to hold you to it because I need some talent that knows how to wrestle like you do because, you know, I'm trying to make a name for myself too. And he said, let's do it together. I gave him some money to go get his car. He cleaned up, got his car fixed, showed up in Memphis. And, you know, after I found Al, I found Don, and I got them to come back. I went over to the Southern Frontier and got Fargo to come back. So my claim to fame in Memphis was that I just went and got the guys from from my childhood that I really loved and respected, and uh, we started drawing money right away. Yeah, that 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 had to be uh, a, a tremendous feeling, I, I would imagine, because I, I know some of the veterans 
when Roy first introduced to his book, or uh, it was almost a revolt, right? Uh, some were like, "This this kid." Uh, so it must have been something for for these legendary figures in your life to believe in you, especially in the case of Al Green, because you, you kind of took a chance on on each other. Yeah, well, I I never will forget, and and let me explain this to you. And with these guys, Les Thatcher and I have become real good friends. But the the baby faces were Les Thatcher, Dennis Hall, and um, Ken Lucas, yeah. and the the heels were. Uh, a mass team. One of them was uh, Frank Morrell and uh, Eddie Sullivan. And I can't remember the other one. But at any rate, right, when Roy announced it, they went to him and said, you know, we're not wrestling for a kid referee. And I really understood that. You know, I, I had a mirror at home and I could look at it and, you know, I was wet behind the ears. I was inexperienced. And so I didn't really get mad at them. But, but what I said was, you know, for every test in life that every stumbling block that I think God puts in you in front of you to test your metal. And if you get through it, there's great opportunities on the other side. And so Joe and Bill Sky were job men, and I went to them. Uh, I hate that word, job men. They underneath talent, enhancement talent. You know, they they lost most of their matches, and I went to them and I said. Uh, I don't have a main event. You guys want to take a shot at it? If you succeed, I'll succeed, and vice versa. And, uh, you know, they busted their butt and almost killed themselves. And uh, the first program clicked in Memphis that I did with Joe and Bill Sky and then following them, I got Don and Al Green and Fargo and Tojo, and we were off to the races. Uh, you know, it's interesting. A lot of people look at the uh, summer of 75, and that's around the time that I first got my first glimpse of the Stomper. And so I became a little, little bit inquisitive about the business. And they look at the, uh, I think it was three, two or three sellouts headlined by Magnificent Zulu, <laughs> uh, who was, was not the best worker on the, on, on the planet, but, but definitely had a, a body that was very uncommon for that time period. And of course, Archie Goley, the Stomper, still had that mystique about him. Um, and it was, was a tremendous draw for you off and on for a number of years. Uh, he's a guy who would draw money for, for six months and then leave and then, and then come back and, and do it again. Very, very loyal. And he wouldn't be, he wouldn't be coming back if he wasn't making a lot of serious cash. Uh, but we, you know, a lot of people look at that and they go, "Man, how did how did a car headline by Zulu draw the money?" Well, if you really take a look at it, there's the Red Hot feud with uh, the Greens and the Fargos, and yes. and 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 I think the culmination it was leading up to all three fabulous Fargos reuniting. 
Uh, and they even had an interview in the studio. And we have that audio from WHVQ. We played it recently, and everyone was just amazed at it. Not not only you know because Roughhouse is just doing his thing where he's kind of just <laughs> he got of bothering Dave Brown and 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 dusting dust off his his jacket and that kind of thing. And Dave's yeah. you know you can tell he's trying not to crack up. And you've got Jackie you know delivering this you know I'm gonna do this this and this incredible gritty. It's not polished. It's not rehearsed. You know, it, it's, it, it feels like it's coming from the heart. And then you've got Don Green, uh, 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 Donnie Fargo, who's who talks barely above a whisper, but it's but and he doesn't say a lot. But it gets over because it each guy is doing something a little bit different. And for and Don Fargo is just you can just tell he's looking at the camera and he's just barely raising his voice like we're coming for you and we're going to hurt you. Yeah, and then and then the greens come out and they cut this great promo. I mean, just it just the uh, Don and Al Green, especially I think it was Al who who could just it's hard. You know, it's it's the kind of promos that get heat and and that draw money. You know what I mean? And absolutely, and and can talk to people in the building. He just gives the perfect response to 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 the Fargos, and uh, and they there, and clearly that was the bout that everybody was coming to see. um, In my opinion, Um, yes. Well, you know, one thing that that we tried to do is, and Jim Cornette comes to mind because he's a real example. He came to me and he said, what kind of character do you want me to be? What kind of role do you want me to play when I go out there? And this is when he first went out. I said, Jim, go out and be yourself. God only made one of you, thank the Lord. (laughs) Go out and be Jim Cornette. Talk about your mother, just like you do back here in the dressing room. I mean, Jim loved his mother, and I admired him for that. And he would talk nonstop. And I'm talking about in the dressing room about her. (laughs) And and I said, just go out and be yourself, Jim. Uh, I didn't have to tell the Fargos to be themselves. They were. Jackie was the, exactly the same in the dressing room or at the dog track over in West Memphis that he was on Memphis TV. Always the same. The only person that we had in Memphis that took on a character when he walked through the curtain was handsome Jimmy Valiant. Mm. He was a totally different person in the dressing room, but everybody else pretty much played the self. Yeah. Uh, Lawler, you know, just from making car, car rides with Lawler to, to Louisville and, and Nashville. Uh, he's just, he's always cutting up and practicing one liners and doing a lot of the stuff that, that, that you see on TV. And, and uh, it, it's, it's, it's really just seamless for, for a guy like Lawler. Uh, yeah. And, and I, I sort of, you know, and I tried to do that when, when I got my chance at it, I was like, well, I'll just go out there and I'll, I'll wear my fraternity clothes and my fraternity pin and I'll just kind of be a smart ass, but maybe with the volume turned up a little bit. And that's uh, right. And 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 I, and I think I drew a couple of hundred dollars for you. 
<laughs> well, yeah, and and you kind of are a preppy nerd, Scott. I mean, that's... <laughs> uh, totally, absolutely, no doubt about it. Yeah, um, you know the the intellectual. You know, we're talking about characters, and you riding with Lawler. I can't wait for the time that Lawler is not concerned with his image and being a babyface and can talk to these halfwits that talk to me on Twitter. Can you imagine? Lola will have them all lining up, jumping off the bridge. Uh, if only Lola, yeah, if, if only Twitter had been around in the 70s somehow, when Lola was red hot as a heel. Oh, oh my gosh. Man. That would have been yeah. fun. But uh, but you're you're certainly no slouch yourself. And, and, I, and again, we were joking about it. it it's like a squ- it's just been like squash matches. You know, these guys coming in with a, a tuna fish reference and you just, you eat their lunch. You eat their tuna yeah. fish lunch, so to speak. Uh, and to the point that a lot of people were asking me, like, going, man, this guy, this can't be Jerry Jarrett. I mean, he's yeah. just crushing these guys. He's mean. And I go, hey, he's just sticking up for him. So these idiots are coming at him with nonsense. They're ignorant. They have no idea about the, the legacy of this man and what he accomplished. And, and they're basing it on what brother love says, yeah, which is yeah. just insane to me. And it is just absolute pure ignorance. So of course he's going to take that tone. It's a, it, you know, I, I said, well, number one, I know it's him because I did an interview with him and right after I got off the phone, he, he tweeted how uh, intelligent I was. So uh, very astute, <laughs> <laughs> clearly still has his wits about him and uh, is a good judge of character. Yeah. <laughs> oh well, it it really is fun. Oh my uh, gosh, it's like shooting fish in a barrel. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I wish I could run across, but see, it seems like all the intelligent people on Twitter are nice guys, and they communicate. I wish one of them would be. My new term. I never knew what a butt lick was. Did you? <laughs> Did you, Scott? Uh, I, some some way that just came to mind. Maybe I maybe I heard Lawler in the seventies, <laughs> but I wish you know there was one or two more intelligent Pritchard followers, so that I could really joust with them. But these guys. Holy smokes, all they know how to do is say, you know how to make chicken salad, huh? I know. <laughs> I know. Not realizing that they're talking to a guy who, uh, you know, his back was against the wall and he had a knife in it uh, after your, dealing, your business dealings with Goulas. And for, for you to convince the top stars in the area to go with you, being so young and that it's, it's so rare for a guy to be that young and that, and that kind of uh, had that kind of booking power. Uh, and my gosh, you, you, you helped win the wrestling war in Atlanta for the NWA. Uh, you didn't just do it in Memphis. And then you went to WWF and it's something that, you know, you've never, you never bragged about it. You, you never really talked that much about it. Um, but it was so obvious to me the influence that you had when I did start seeing Bret Hart get the, get the championship and this great mid-card feud between Michaels and, and uh, Shawn Michaels, 
it was elevated to to the to the to the top of the cards uh and you have to think that that direction changed the course of the WWF for the better, uh, resulting in better wrestling, better action. Uh, the King of the Ring pay-per-view that Lawler debuted on, where he attacked Brett, uh, that was one of the best wrestling pay-per-views I've ever seen. Uh, just because, yeah. you know, you had Kurt Hennig featured, uh, and I believe Brett beat him in uh, the quarterfinals to or the semifinals to, to, to meet Bam Bam Bigelow, who was a big guy but could work and had the advantage of also working in Memphis and learning uh, his timing, learning the psychology of the business. Uh, and he could move, and he and Brett just had a really good chemistry. And then you have that great – it was almost like a Memphis-type angle with Lawler showing up. And, uh, it, you know, it's funny that I, I, Brett still complains about Lawler being stiff with uh, throwing the throne on top of him. Well, hey, <laughs> I mean, it had to look good, you know. I mean, that, the yeah. reason why it, it, that, that program got over in part was because Lawler laid into him and, and it was snug. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that used to make me so angry when I'd go to the NWA alliance meetings and some one of those guys would say, oh, well, we can't consider Lawler for the heavyweight title. Uh, we have to have somebody that really knows how to wrestle that's tough. And I, I would tell them, you know, why don't you bring your tough guy and I'll bring mine and we'll forget it's a work. Lolo knocked their wee-wee off. <laughs> but anyway, that's neither here nor there. But, uh, you know. I, I, want to, I want to ask you one thing really quickly, and it, and it just brought up to me, because I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, you know, I know Harley Race, definitely a tough guy, uh, and, and could prevent a double cross if, if necessary, without, without a doubt. Uh, but, you know, the, the the argument for that starts to lose water when, when a guy like Flair, who... You know, I, great athlete, uh, great hell of a performer. Uh, and the travel schedule that he endured, you, ha- you have to admire it. Uh, working these, uh, you know, hour broadways night after night. You know, not one of my all-time favorites. Like, you know, give me Nick Bockwinkle any day of the week. But, uh, you know, how much tougher uh, was was Flair uh, compared to Lawler? And I, I'm curious about Flair's appearances or his lack of appearances in Memphis. Uh, he wrestled Lawler uh, on September 3rd. You know, they did that great TV lane angle in 82, and you ultimately went back with Nick uh, Bockwinkel as, as the champion instead of uh, bringing uh, Rick in for his for his payoff um, and, a, and, a, and a shot with Lawler when that seemed to be the direction you were going. And then uh, Lawler gets the shot in 85. And I think even with the high ticket prices, the combined show with Crockett, you guys drew a record gate of over $100,000. And you had another date with Crockett in November. And Lawler does not wrestle Flair, uh, even though he said it, he was going to win the world title in 1985 or retire. Seems like that would have been a natu- the natural matchup to go to, uh, other than the fact you were going to get the finish that we all wanted with Lawler getting the, the NWA World's Championship. And instead, Coco Ware got it. Um, Lawler told me, and now this is, you know, this was in private. <laughs> on a car ride, I think coming back from Nashville, uh, that he hated his match with Flair. 
and that uh, he felt like it almost killed the territory because he was doing, you know, all the same spots. We talked about believabil- uh, believability earlier, uh, doing all the same spots that, that he would call in a lot of his matches, which you could kind of get away with before cable TV. Uh, and he hated the chops. He thought the chops were ridiculous. And it was kind of Lawler saying, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't want to work with him. But do, you, do you recall it being that way? Well, yeah, I mean, Lawler, Lawler didn't enjoy his matches with him. And because it, you know, Flair did Flair's style. And because he was the champion, he'd go all around and call his own shots. We were, we were a different planet in Memphis. We were going to take care of the place that, that we all made our living and if it made somebody mad, it made somebody mad. You know, some simple, simple things can happen. And some people carry that anger from that moment all through the rest of their life. Flair has never been fond of me. And the reason he didn't, he showed up in Memphis thinking he was going to wrestle Lawler. And instead, he, I had him against Coco Ware. And there was, you know, there was a very good reason for that. Uh, the NWA said, we've got to quit having so many non-finished title matches. So we, when the champion comes in, we want him to win one, two, three. Well, I wasn't the sharpest knife in the drawer, but I also didn't come in on the last load of turnips. I wasn't going to let Ric Flair come in and beat somebody that was drawing thirty to 40,000 people a month in one city. Mm-hmm. I would have been insane. So I changed the thing around. I think Coco beat Lawler on a TV or in another town. Uh, he beat and Dundee, we, but Bill Dundee. Yeah. And, and, but it was all designed so that I didn't have the Flair Lawler match. Well, Flair took this personal. And has never been fond of me. And, you know, I hate it that he takes that attitude. Flair also never owned the territory. So he never saw it from that side of the table. Well, and I can understand that. I think he, he was co-owner of Knoxville for a while, but it, it quickly went out of business. So, well, I mean, so, there, I, so, so there you go. But uh, another, another guy who I don't think was too fond of you uh, and took something that seemed – uh, petty. Uh, from where I'm sitting, but maybe I'm just partial to you and and just good business sense. Uh, you had Dusty Rhodes booked on a card in June of '84. Uh, probably one of the biggest cards uh, of that era. Uh, headlined by the Road Warriors and uh, defending the national tag team titles against uh, Jerry Lawler and Austin Idol. And uh, they, and Idol and uh, Lawler have been make some, making some appearances for Ole Anderson. Uh, I believe they they wrestled the Warriors in uh, Cleveland and Baltimore. Uh, so it was kind of a national feud, um, and that was going to be the big money match. Uh, and of course, you brought in Handsome Jimmy uh, for a shot. I believe he worked with Rick Rude, 
Um, and I think about two weeks out, uh, you explained at once that you were looking at the card and, and you realized, you know, with all these big names, uh, it just doesn't make any sense to bring in Dusty and put him in a match with Jim Neidhart. You know, uh, it's <laughs> it's not worth the, the, the expense and it won't do Dusty any good being that low on a card. Um, I believe you said, you know, maybe I'll, I'll bring him in some other time. Uh, and you and you gave Dusty, I think, like a like a at least a seven day notice, uh, and it may have been nine. Um, and you couldn't get a hold of him. You had to leave a message on his answering machine. Well, <laughs> I think that really pissed him off. Uh, supposedly, um, is there any other reason why Dusty didn't make any more shots? And, yeah, uh, yeah. It it goes it the the deal again. Whether I was right or wrong or whatever, my loyalty was to the Memphis Territory. And, you know, I really didn't care if somebody in my mind was dumb enough to get mad at me and take it personal because I was doing what was best for my business. But the, the dusty thing, Eddie called me and said, Eddie Graham. And he said, Jerry, we are having record breaking business as far as the gross houses and we're losing money. Uh, I need you to come down and look at this and see what you think. And I, so I, you know, I said, okay. So I went down and saw some of the cars and Sutton Washington booking and, and, Dusty was strictly, his mind was set, how many people can I get in the building? And so uh, after the, a booking session, I went to Eddie and I said, Eddie, your booker has a goal of drawing money, but you have to be the businessman and limit the talent and the trans, you know, flying people in from California and New York on a third match down on the, in the Miami card didn't make any sense. So uh, Eddie ended up replacing Dusty, and I think Eddie told him, Jerry thinks, because I had some points down there, I own part of the territory. And I think Eddie told him, uh, Jerry thinks we need to make a change. Well, that isn't what I said. I said, you've got to limit the people that Dusty can put on the card. Because I always thought Dusty was one of the greatest talents this business ever had. Uh, I mean, he can do an interview mm. and... Like, you know, he was just oh, incredible. Yeah, yeah. And and his ring work was adequate enough. And so I think that that kind of set the tone of I'm not real fond of him. Um, now, so then the Memphis thing came up and I... We had it advertised, I think, as the greatest talent in the world is coming to Memphis. 
and and the tickets wasn't selling, so I had to cut the card, and I didn't just cut Dusty. I cut a bunch of people. And uh, but then the then Dusty and I, you know, I brought him in to TNA, and uh, then Dixie Carter and her family had controlling interests. And one day they came, Dixie came to me, and some guy from out there in Dallas, I forget his name, he said. Uh, we want you to, at this booking meeting, we want you to give Dusty his notice. And I didn't, I didn't have any choice. And I think Dusty thought it was my decision, even though later I told him, uh, Dusty, do you know that Dixie Carter was calling the shots? And... Uh, you know, he said he did, but I don't think he really understood it. So, you know, while I greatly admired Dusty, some events happened that I think put us at odds with each other. Uh, and that's unfortunate. Actually, I had uh, I had the idea to to call you today because I was looking at some of the the summer of '77, which is near and dear to my heart. And uh, you know, Dusty passed away nearly three years ago to the day. And on this very day, uh, 41 years ago, uh, Dusty made his third appearance for you. I can only assume uh, a favor was called into Eddie Graham there, uh, headlining, against, headlining against Lawler in a lumberjack match and drawing drew about uh, 7,000 fans. Uh, and, and then he didn't appear in the territory for, for a number of years. So, uh, and, and talk about a guy who would have been tailor-made uh, for Memphis. Um, but, you know, you already had your, your, your hand-picked stars, really, with, with Lawler and Dundee. And, and Dusty is not the type who's going to uh, stay uh, in, a, in another territory very long because he had his Florida base. And then I think sometimes he would encourage Dusty, yeah, go work for Vince Sr. in New York. No, I don't mind because he kind of wanted some other talent to get over while Dusty was gone. Yeah, well, Dusty, every place he ever was, was a super draw. So him working limited in Memphis had a lot more to do with the other places he was. He was in Florida for a while. He was with Crockett a long time. And... uh he just wasn't available uh, a whole lot. Uh, one thing I, w- I wanted to ask you about, because I, I, I just I just thought of it, and then somebody asked me recently about my feelings on it, uh, talking about those Crockett cards, which uh, it, it, it just kind of, I think the timing was a was a coincidence, but it, it seemed. <laughs> You know, given given your history with Dusty, who knows? On September, tw- you know, the the Memphis card was on September thirtieth, uh, nineteen eighty five. Uh, Dusty shoots the big angle with Ric Flair, where they break Dusty's ankle. You know, to set up Starcade eighty five, and so he misses the Memphis shot. <laughs> yeah. and, and I always kind of wondered. I was like, oh, I wonder if that was a little bit by design, you know? <laughs> but uh, but I don't know. It, it could have just been the timing of the angle. Uh, but what I was going to ask you, though, the, the Crockett deal, uh, some have speculated because right after that last show that you guys promoted together in November of 85, uh, in 86, you know, he starts 
coming into Memphis without you and makes the big mistake of trying to fill the Liberty Bowl <laughs> for a great American match. When they announced that date, I just assumed that they were going to do a Lawler Flair match because that's the only way that you're even going to come close to filling up the Liberty Bowl or even half of it. Uh, and that was the first time he came in with with no Jarrett talent and no Jerry Lawler. And they drew Jim Cornette said they drew about a thousand people in, in the Liberty Bowl Stadium for that for a show headlined by Nikita Koloff, challenging Flair for the title. Yeah, well, you know, Jimmy Crockett, bless his heart, had delusions of grandeur, and for a long time. Now, here another history that put Jimmy and I at odds and I didn't have any idea what happened. I was booking Atlanta and, you know, we were selling out the city auditorium at two hours before match time. And, and so the whole world knew about it. And Jim Crockett, there was a stage and the dressing room was back off of the stage on one end of the building. And I walked out of the dressing room, and there were, I don't know, 15, 20 guys back there on the stage. And I didn't know any of them. Now, you know, I had met with Crockett Sr., Jimmy's daddy, but I didn't know Jimmy Crockett from Adam. So I walked over all these people and I said, uh, folks, y'all are going to have to uh, go get a seat. Uh, I can't have all this congestion here. Well, one of them was Jim Crockett. He knew who I was, but I didn't know who he was. So, and I can understand it. That kind of put a bad taste in his mouth. But in spite of that, we were all opposition to Vince McMahon or Vince. We felt like Vince was opposition to us. And, and then we had the Eddie Einhorn meeting in Chicago. Um, did the book, the match at the Meadowlands. And I made, you know, we made TV in Memphis and Louisville and, and had almost a sellout. It fell apart. That's the famous call of Vince while we were in the meeting. <laughs> that telling Eddie Einhorn those guys couldn't agree on a pizza. Right. <laughs> and so, you know, when Eddie came back to the meeting and said, let's prove him wrong and let's work together. So we did for that one meeting in, at the airport, some hotel. And, uh, but, and I've, you know, as time has made the memory a blur, but I think Crockett came to the event because I know Dusty was there. And I think Watts stayed at home. And Watts called me and said, uh, Jerry, I'm not going to be a part of the group anymore. I want to, I'm going to take my territory national. And then, damn if Jimmy Crockett didn't come at that, that night came to me because I was, 
Eddie Graham and I were kind of running the matches and setting up the finishes. Crockett came to me and said, uh, I've decided, and I want to be man enough to tell you, I've decided to uh, go out on my own. So the big front ended right there. And, of course, you know the story. Uh, Crockett went out on his own, and Watts went out on his own, and they both went broke. And meanwhile, Memphis uh, survived longer than any of it. Not only survived, but drew some damn good houses while they were closing up shop. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Gosh, 86, the huge feud with Dundee and Landell against uh, Lawler and Mantell, the sellouts, and then I think four or five weeks straight crowds in the nine, 10,000 people at the Coliseum. Uh, the, the, and then the following year, the big feud with Tommy Rich and Austin Idol, uh, again, just drawing some great money all, all through January with a, with an angle that just built beautifully and slowly. And again, we've always, often talked about how you are always so smart enough not to bring, not to bring in the world champion all the time where it got to be routine and you had to do all these screwy finishes cause you couldn't get a title change. Uh, you know, you announced it ahead of time that the champion was coming in and created an issue around it. A lot of people forget that the whole hair match thing uh, with Idol started over Lawler getting a world title shot with Bockwinkle and and not yeah. Idol and Rich. Um, and it was a personal thing that, that the people believed in because we had been conditioned to believe that the that, that, the world championship meant something and it was valuable and that friendships go out the window when the world champions come into town. Not to load up your card. You know, there's a lot of people knocking the fact that uh, the WWE has so few title matches. And if you've ever been on the promoting side of the table, uh, it makes perfectly good sense to me that, I mean, why do you have a world champion wrestling every month? It doesn't right. make any sense. Yeah. It it loses the specialness of it. Well, when, when WWE did that, and, I, and I, I don't really enjoy getting into too much about what WWE's current direction is, but uh, when, when they they had an opportunity when they split when they split the brands uh, to have the world championship seem special again, you know, because he, he's the only one who can appear on both shows, so he doesn't appear appear as frequently on each one. But instead, they they end up creating another world championship, and it's just. From from that point on, it was just like downhill from there. It was already uh, the titles are, were already becoming practically worthless anyway. But uh, man, it's just my friends and I. We used to just man, just the championships, the belts. I mean, Memphis had all these great personal feuds and brawls, but a lot of times they were centered around championship matches or championship opportunities. Yes, I, and I favor the championship opportunity. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because that was that was also the the catalyst for the feud uh, with uh, Dundee and Lawler in '79, because uh, yeah. Dundee almost beat the champ, and uh, you know Lawler and Dundee have been teaming. They just come off this feud with the Blonde Bombers. They appeared to be as close as ever, and they announced uh, that Stanley Blackburn, <laughs> judging from the that you said a tape there and said, uh, you know, Bill Dundee should should have be the world champion. He had Nick Bockwinkle beat, and you see Lawler just kind of. 
smirking. He doesn't say anything. He just kind of smirks. And then slowly over the next couple of weeks, the, the crown shaped goatee, because he had shaved it off, it starts growing back in. <laughs> and his his uh, conversion to the dark side is complete once that goatee is back in place. Oh, just love the uh, the psychology of it. <laughs> Well, Jerry, uh, I know you got to get going. You got to pack, and uh, but I know uh, you're, you're. I feel like you and I could just talk for for hours at a time. Uh, but I want to have you back on again. I don't want to. I don't want you to get sick of talking to me. So uh, I'll let you go. But uh, I appreciate your time. And tell folks uh, how they can uh, find your podcast. Uh, it's on podavenue.com. Um Sean keeps it on Twitter and Facebook with links. Uh, and basically, we uh, go back and forth between, mostly we talk about the Tennessee Territory, but then we'll jump over and uh, talk about my time in uh, WWE, like we did the thing about Vince turning, becoming a talent. Yeah. Uh, we're we're going to later do a show uh, when I was in Texas and with the Von Eric boys and and that was a incredible time. Yeah, I, I can uh, imagine the stories you have yeah, <laughs> from yeah. that from that. Experience. I mean, you know, a lot of people aren't aware, but. When I was out there, I started the Monster Truck Racing and had a TV show on ESPN called Tough Tracks. And and that's really interesting how all that came to be. It's not about wrestling, but, uh, you know, I don't know if people that tune in to these podcasts just want to hear about wrestling or stories of interest well i think you know i i think it's interesting that anytime uh, a wrestling promoter goes outside of his own uh arena no pun intended to uh to make money in another venture and 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 you know vince has certainly tried to do that there's no question he's one of the greatest wrestling promoters of all time uh but you know the the bodybuilding federation um i i don't know if you've really thought that through <laughs> <laughs> I wish yeah. he had. I wish he had uh, had you take a look at the business proposal on that first, uh, and, and again with the XFL uh, that that he is uh, supposedly going to bring back. But now I think that would be interesting to to, to hear about your other exploits and uh, and how you approached it uh, as a as a business. Um, cause it, cause yeah, I, and then you know it was some exciting times. Uh, my time in Atlanta. Um, you know, we were at the city auditorium and, uh, because of our success and big houses there, uh, I was able to book the very first match in the Omni. And that really makes me feel old to think that I booked the first wrestling match in a building that was the center of the Southeast, the Omni. And now there is no more Omni. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, and, uh, you know, and, and you did it, I, I believe, because obviously you wanted to, to bring in Tim Woods and one, one great thing. And I think it's just, it's such a tribute to you, Jerry, and I'm not just blowing smoke. Uh, you did it by creating stars 
you know, so so many of these guys were not proven names. Um, and Johnny Walker was a guy who now certainly was a star without the hood, but was maybe heading toward the twilight of his career. And you create, yeah, Tim was not available. Mr. Wrestling can't come in. I'll create Mr. Wrestling too. And gosh, I mean, got over like gangbusters, just incredibly popular. And another guy too, interviews weren't polished, but man, they were believable. Yes. Yes. He was, uh, I, I have nothing but fond memories of, of, uh, Johnny Walker, the, uh, Jimmy Carter's mother loved him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I mean, she really did. Yeah. She, and I think because Johnny was real straightforward and didn't scream and holler and back to my thing about be yourself, you know, Johnny came to me and when we first put that little deal together and he said, Jerry, I'm I'm not a screamer or a hollerer. Um, I can't show a lot of emotion. I said, then this is the perfect gimmick for you. You're under a mask. They can't see whether you're animated or deadpan. Mm. Just talk. Yep. And he did, and boy, did he get over. Sure and did. then the strange thing is Tim didn't want to come back I called Tim and I said you know I've had a lot of success bringing stars that are retired and he said well I'm through with the wrestling business but he saw how well Johnny Walker got over and he's called me one day and he said I've changed my mind you got a place for me <laughs> oh my gosh Oh, that's fantastic. And, uh, you know, what is, and I'm just going to close really quickly with uh, – because there's a lot that's been said about you, uh, both good and bad. And, and I think those of us who know you, uh, we, we know the truth. And I'm glad that you're addressing some of these things that unfortunate Bruce uh, has uh, cooked up and convinced people of. But real fans who understand the history of the profession, they certainly know better. Um, and don't take my word for it. I, when I was at, when we, you and I first talked in person at the NWA legends fan fest, uh, I think back in 2009, we couldn't go five minutes at a time without a legend in the business stopping and say, Oh, I'm sorry. I don't mean to interrupt, but I just want to either, you know, and they would either shake your hand or give you a hug. And nearly all of them said, thank you. Yes. Well, I've, I've been, I've been blessed. Scott, all my life, I've, I've kind of led a charmed life. A, th a thing that I do not understand is, you know, you're going to go through life, and I we've talked about some of them. Uh, some situations happened with Ric Flair, and some situations happened with Dusty. So, you know, everybody's not going to love you. But here's what I do not understand. It was 30 years ago that I did the little thing with Bruce and brought the yes man and set it on Vince's table. And I, I guess that has burned in his soul for 30 years. Because what I don't understand is why he would 
keep on and keep on and keep on fabricating, you know, stuff. And there are so many gullible people out there that will let him defy history. And the truth is, if you set Bruce in a room and said, list the, your accomplishments, I don't know that it would be more than one sentence long. <laughs> Carry coffee for that. I don't, you know. Uh, yeah, I don't. Uh, I, I don't even know if that would be 142 characters, which is the, your uh, used to be the, the the limit on a tweet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yours would yours uh, would take about three books, and his would take about a couple of tweets or two. <laughs> but I mean, you know, it, what's and it speaks very poorly for society. There are a legion of people that believe his bullshit. Right. And, uh, you know, it doesn't really bother me. I have fun getting to play the heel role with, <laughs> like you said, some goldfish in a tank. Yeah, yeah, shoot, yeah, shoot, shoot, fish in a but, barrel. I, and and but, I, 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 I was, I was calling it the Mister Jarrett character. <laughs> yeah, it's it's amazing to me how things you think you have the world figured out, and and suddenly at seventy five, I say, you know, I don't have any of it figured out. I've I've voted for Republicans and I've voted for Democrats and switch back and forth. I always considered that I'd vote for who I thought was the best man. But I never hated any president. I can't even comprehend that. And and I I watch the network news and I watch the Sunday shows and I go, these people really hate our president. Yeah. And I don't understand that. Well, I, a lot of people hated the last one. And, uh, and I can tell you, I, I was, I was, I was, I don't want to get off on too much on this, but I, I was a little shocked at some of my Southern friends over some of the things that were said about Obama that had nothing to do with policy. You know what I mean? It was just had more to do with his skin yeah. color. And I, I guess, I guess, you know, I, I, I wish I had a dime for every time one of those guys said, uh, you've been out in California, you've been out in California too long. I'm like, well, maybe you need to get out a little bit more and travel the world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, I mean, you know, I, Obama was, I didn't vote for him and he wasn't my favorite president, but I didn't hate him. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, and I can't even imagine the mindset of the society that we live in today. I I'd, I'd never thought it would come to this. Well, you do have to admit, though, that uh, other than Vince McMahon, D Donald Trump may be the most natural he'll ever. <laughs> Just in the way, because sometimes I think he does it to kind of wind people up a little bit. You know what I mean? As the, yeah. as the Brits say, uh, you know. Kind well, of I've kind of gone to school watching him <laughs> and I use it. Oh, my fish in the barrel. On there Twitter. you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, Jerry, I, that's just another reason why I'll keep the compliments coming. I never want to get on your bad side. <laughs> and, I, and I hope you, because uh, I don't want to be destroyed on social media. <laughs> 
right. Well, Jerry, uh, where, where, uh, where are you headed on vacation? We're going to Santa Bella. I've been going there for 30 years. You know, I had a house there. Oh. And uh, uh, that, that I helped pay for. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. Well, the money I stole from all the boys. <laughs> <laughs> I, I made, yeah. made, made you enough to pay the light bill one month yeah <laughs> one thing i don't have to worry about is it it costs six dollars to drive on the island no, and so wow. none of pritchard's fans will be able to afford to come down there no well i think a lot of them are still living in their parents basement so Oh yeah! <laughs> All right, Jim. Well, hey, have a have a good trip, and it's uh, always a pleasure. And I'm gonna, uh, I'd love for you to come back and give us another uh, Memphis wrestling history lesson. Just call me. Yeah, uh, I'm right here. I'm on my princess. Wait a minute. I'm on my Pete Princess phone. Live with Colonel Tom Parker, Memphis, Tennessee. Elvis is on. Elvis is on the line. They're waiting to hear from him. They're waiting to see me. They got all their children around the TV. Colonel Tom Parker told me in just a few minutes. See him. See him here. He told me and said, "Big Dust." Coming to Memphis, Jerry Lawler wants some of you. You want some of Jerry Lawler? This this whole town thing gonna be straightened out. I'm the number one contender for the title. I'm the prettiest athlete in the world. I'm the greatest. I am the best. I'm the man of the hour. Woo! Too sweet to be sour, Jack. I pick up this phone this morning when it rang. I said, long distance information. Give me Memphis, Tennessee. Help me find a party, try to get in touch with me. She did not leave a number. I know who to call. Elvis called me there. Elvis said, I'm going to pick you up in your limousine. I want you there driving in styling class. And your smiling face and a lot of grace. The thing is, Jerry Lawler going to feel the power of the dream. Going to see the dream get down in Boogie like nobody ever seen in Boogie. Memphis, Tennessee going to be my home, my house, all the black. And all the white, and all the green, all the yellow, and all the races, creeds, and color going to flow in that building. Going to see me because I got something special for him. If he wants to match, I got my road shuffle. I'm going to put it on him. I'm so quick. I'm going to sting him, knock him down, beat him down. Jerry Lawler is not quick enough to stay with a dream. And better than that, I might even be there early with 17 dancing go-go bears. And we want to thank Jerry Jarrett for taking time to share some more insight into the background, uh, a little bit uh, behind the curtain of the territory days when the locker room used to be closely guarded. It's uh, really interesting to hear these stories of Pro Wrestling USA, uh, the TV tapings in Memphis and in Louisville, as well as the combined Crockett shows that uh, some speculate were designed uh, by Crockett to introduce his talent to as many people as possible. And what better way to do that than to work with Jerry Jarrett on combined shows, uh, one of which drew about 10,000. I think the other one drew 7,000 people. And then in 86, he starts running Memphis without Jarrett. 
It fails spectacularly. Their first show is at the Liberty Bowl in Memphis. And about the only way you'd come close to filling half of that stadium for a wrestling show on 4th of July would be a Jerry Lawler-Rick Flair NWA title match. Instead, they go with Nikita Koloff as the challenger. And as Jim Cornette has uh, recounted several times, they were they were lucky to be, uh, I think, just about 1,000 people in a 50,000-seat football stadium. Way to go, Dusty. So I want to remind everybody that Kentucky Fried Wrestling is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. You can follow me on Twitter at Trav Scott Bowden. You can follow Brian at Great Brian Last. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash Kentucky Fried Wrestling. And last week I told you on my YouTube page that you could find the Lawler-Dundee Loserly Town match from 1983 on my YouTube channel. And I warned you to watch it quickly because the evil empire would take it down. It lasted about three seconds, and it was gone. But you can find it on my Facebook page. And again, that's facebook.com slash Kentucky Fried Wrestling. For Brian Last, this is Scott Bowden. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye, everybody. The announcers on this program are selected and paid by parties other than this station, namely the promoters of championship wrestling. <laughs>